Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. <clears throat> AT&T connects an O to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like my Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are you? And today I got to thinking about television. And I actually debated about what I wanted to talk about on today's episode because there are a couple of topics I really want to dive into. One of those is the continuing decline of the cable and satellite TV business. People have been presaging the death of cable and satellite TV for ages. Uh, in fact, I kind of did it in an interview I did with CNN years ago. Turns out that was a dumb move on my part. Not that I was wrong. I wasn't. But uh, at the time, the company I worked for was owned by Discovery Communications. And uh, it turns out the bosses of a cable company are not happy if you make the observation that cable is uh, in trouble. Now, I maintain it's not like I caused folks to dump cable. I wasn't telling people to get rid of their cable. I was just observing the trend. But, you know, I guess if you yell out iceberg, you get the blame for the fact that the ship hit it. 
anyway, <laughs> that's not this episode. So we will look into that in the future. But this episode, I'm going to uh, cover something else. Because if I want to talk about cable and satellite decline, I really need to sift through a lot of information, a lot of statistics before I do that. Because it can actually be tricky to know what numbers to trust in that field. There's some sites out there that uh, give pretty dramatic numbers for the decline in subscribers. And I'd want to verify all of that before I actually do an episode. So instead, today I thought I would talk a bit about smart televisions. You know, essentially the standard kind of TV that you can buy these days. Not that every television on the market these days is a smart TV, but most of them are. Like definitely the ones that tend to get prominent uh, placement in in uh, in in places like Best Buy, those are definitely smart TVs. And, you know, these are the kind of televisions that come preloaded with the ability to connect to various online content providers, you know, like streaming services and whatnot. And while they are the norm now, it was not that long ago that your typical television was just an output device, a dumb one. Like you would tune it to a channel, uh, you know, or perhaps connect it to a media player like a, a VCR or Laserdisc or something. And you saw whatever was on that signal feed and that was it. And and it was one way, right? You weren't sending information back. No one knew what it was you were watching unless you happened to be a, a Nielsen family, which would require you to connect another piece of hardware to your television. And that would register what it was you were watching when you were watching it for the purposes of collecting ratings. But most people, you know, they're just watching TV and whatever they're watching, that data is lost. Today's televisions are very different. But how did we get there? When did televisions start to turn, quote unquote, smart? Or if you prefer, when did our televisions start to become nefarious data gathering tools feeding into the data rich ecosystem of our modern world? Let's find out. First, let's get into some prehistoric stuff. So for decades, televisions were dumb. Depending upon whom you ask, they were dumb in different ways, or they would make you dumb. You know, they would be the so-called opiate of the masses. They were also large. They were heavy. They were clunky. You know, the earliest TVs were essentially pieces of furniture. Uh, they depended upon cathode ray tubes, which look a little bit like light bulbs, these cathode ray tubes shoot a tight beam of electrons at the backside of the television screen. They scan line by line down the screen. And in the process, they hit elements that would luminesce and create the pictures that you would see on the other side. In the 1960s, color television began to transform the industry, though it would take, you know, like more than a decade for color TV tech to surpass the old, reliable, and perhaps most importantly, less expensive black and white television technology. Meanwhile, there were scientists and engineers who were creating the tech that would allow for the emergence of flat screens. Now, keep in mind, these old CRT sets were boxy. These were the, the big cabinet-style televisions. You could not easily mount these to a wall or anything like that. I mean, you could mount them to a wall, but they'd be sticking way out on, like, an arm that was mounted to a stud in the wall. Otherwise, they would just fall right down. But as early as the 1960s, you had teams creating the tech that would allow for flat panel TVs, and it would take decades for those to come to the market. At the same time, you had other folks creating devices that would allow consumers to connect other stuff to their televisions. 
So in the old, old days, really the only thing you could connect your TV to was an antenna and you would get over the air broadcasts. Later on, you'd be able to connect your television to a cable connection, either from a cable service provider or later a satellite dish. Plus, you would have connections that would let you hook up a VCR, a laser disc, video game system, that kind of thing to your TV. The television was gradually becoming a more versatile technology, or rather its compatibility with other technologies would increase television's utility. The TV itself wasn't really getting that much more advanced. Surprisingly, at least to me, one predecessor to smart TVs launched as early as the 1970s. Now, I say surprisingly because in the 1970s, you still had folks building out ARPANET, and ARPANET in itself was kind of a predecessor to the internet. It's where a lot of the protocols that would later end up powering the internet were first designed. So, how could you have a smart TV? if there were no internet for the TV to connect to. Enter the Videotex. That's V-I-D-E-O-T-E-X. Now, in many ways, Videotex was like computer bulletin board systems uh, or BBSs. These were things where one person could turn their computer into a host machine by running some software, and they could allow other people to dial in using an, an over-the-phone line modem into that PC in order to access files, maybe save files to the machine. They could leave messages for other BBS members. They could play the occasional game, that kind of thing. So it wasn't the internet. It was contained to this one computer system, but people could dial into it. Viewtex was similar, but it was meant mainly for televisions or dumb terminals. Now, the Viewtex typically consisted of two pieces of hardware that you needed in addition to your television. One piece of hardware was essentially a set-top box that you would connect to your TV. The set-top box would connect to your phone line as well. Uh, later versions would be able to connect to cable TV feeds. So it would connect like a VCR to your TV and would have an outward connection that would connect to some specific provider. That would let your television display information sent over that transmission line from whatever company it was that offered the service. The other piece of hardware was some sort of controller. Frequently, it looked like a keyboard. And these would often use infrared signals, like your typical remote control, to send messages to the set-top box. And that made the video text, technically, it could be a two-way communications technology. Not only would you be able to view information on your TV, like news articles or stock market quotes or weather information or whatever, you could potentially send information back up to the service. So some of these would offer message boards, like classified ads, that kind of thing. You could actually leave messages on those boards. And that became a popular service in a few places where this tech actually took off, which was mostly in France. Like it launched in different places around the world, but in most places it failed to get much traction apart from France. Now, one reason why it didn't get much traction is the hardware was typically pretty expensive. Uh, there were a few places that really tried to make it work. The UK really pushed for this. Uh, there, the post office was really promoting Videotex technology pretty hard. And you might wonder, why was the post office interested in this? Well, at the time, the post office was in charge of the telephone lines in the UK. 
And in the UK, folks were charged for using the phones, even if it was for local calls. So the more you used your phone, the more you had to pay the post office. So why not create a service that encourages people to tie up their phone lines and generate revenue? Except it didn't really take off in the UK. Now, video text was fundamentally different from the internet. Yes, you were getting information sent over transmission lines from another place and you were viewing it on a screen. But apart from that, it was very different because the internet is a network of computer networks. And over the internet, you can access information stored on servers that are all over the world. Not just one server, but any of the servers that are available to you to go to. Obviously, some servers have protections in place where unless you have the proper credentials, you don't get in, but you get my point. Video text was more like a direct line to a specific company's service. So if you purchased a video text system, you could only access whatever the company that offered this system had. That was it. You couldn't swap over to some other company's service unless you were to go and buy all new hardware and connect to that. So imagine for a second that you could only use your computer to access, I don't know, all of Disney's material, but nothing from anyone else. If you wanted to be able to access, I don't know, Reddit, you would have to go out and get a different computer and subscribe to a different service. It's not exactly consumer friendly. Now, one brilliant bit of business with the video techs was that the companies that offered them could double dip in a way. They could offer to carry information from specific providers, like content providers, like a, like a prominent newspaper, for example. And they would charge a fee to the newspaper, and in return, they would carry the newspaper's content to users. So, in other words, content creators would have to pay a fee to video, the videotex provider for the privilege of having their content sent to viewers. And I'm guessing they would do this because it was a new way to make those viewers aware of the source of that information, and that hopefully they would go out and then subscribe directly to the periodical, for example. Then the videotext provider turns around and also charges a subscription fee to the user on top of all the hardware fees they had to pay in order to get the system in the first place. So the videotext company would get paid on both ends, the content end and the consumption. Now, this is the kind of stuff that net neutrality proponents point at when they make their arguments, that if you don't have net neutrality, you can have a situation where internet service providers are charging both customers to access service and content creators to carry their content. That would fragment the internet experience. A person who's subscribing to ISP A could end up with a fundamentally different experience from someone subscribed to ISP B, all because the two different ISPs only offer access to a subsection of all the stuff out on the internet. But I digress. The hardware and services were so expensive that they just never really took off in almost every market except in France. In fact, France was really a, an outlier. The relevant service in France called Minitel was popular enough that it was actually more popular than the internet even as late as 1998. There were more people on France's Minitel service than there were subscribers to the internet. But even Minitel could only remain relevant for so long, and in 2012, the service finally went dark. Still, Videotex, which had lots of different proprietary names depending upon the region, acted as a, as a kind of predecessor for smart televisions. Granted, 
this technology was an add-on. It was a set-top box that you would connect to your TV. So it wasn't like it was directly integrated into the television set itself. But some of the ideas relating to smart TVs were definitely showing up as early as the 1970s, using the television to access additional content and services beyond your normal TV shows. Now, when we come back, we'll talk more about the early history of smart TVs. But first, let's take a break for these messages. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Another thing I need to mention is a Japanese technology, though this one we have to have some caveats. So according to Gene Gregory in his collection of articles, which is titled Japanese Electronics Technology, Enterprise and Innovation, uh, which I have to add is not necessarily an unimpeachable source when it comes to historical data, According to him, Japanese companies developed an 
intelligent television receiver, his words, that would allow Japanese broadcasters to include additional information that viewers would be able to access if they happen to have a television with one of those receivers. But beyond this assertion, I can't find a whole lot of information about this. Doesn't mean that, w- that he's wrong or that he's not referring to something specific. I just could not find corroborating information. However, I found a ton of different sources that reference Gene Gregory. So they're using him as kind of the prime source for this particular entry into the history of smart TVs. It very well may be true. I just can't find verification for it. Uh, At least I couldn't before the recording of this podcast. Maybe I will eventually come across some and then I can extend extensive apologies to Gene Gregory. But the idea was that there is unused bandwidth in a channel's range of frequencies and that broadcasters would be able to tap into some of that because they weren't going to be using very much of it in order to send some additional information to viewers who happen to have these kinds of televisions. Uh, So if you do a search for the history of smart TVs, you're likely to see some mention of this somewhere. But as far as I can tell, it all traces back to Gregory's collection of articles And some people have said that he gets a little loosey-goosey with historic facts because that wasn't really the the relevant part of it. It was more of an overall view of Japan's influence in uh, in innovation in general and, you know, the evolution of technology in particular. From there, things go quiet in the smart TV space for more than a decade. But in the mid-90s, Jean-Marie Gâteau and Dominique Bertrand filed for a patent titled television system in a digital or analog network. Now, the abstract for the patent reads as follows. I'm just going to quote it directly. Quote, An economic television system used in a digital or analog network incorporating at least one user identification device, at least monodirectional or bidirectional connector to data systems, and at least one image, sound, and data decompression and or compression element. This system also comprises at least one instantaneous acquisition means. Application to the fields of interactive multi-transactions, remote monitoring, simultaneous transaction, or other communications uses, end quote. And like all patents, that's pretty wordy. It's a real, real dense with jargon. But in other words, the patent calls for a system that allows for connecting a television not just to a network, like a computer network, but to other components as well, including stuff like input devices such as light pens and barcode readers or output devices like printers. Essentially, the patent is laying out the components needed to turn the television from a passive display device into something more interactive, though the inclusion of monodirectional or bidirectional means you could have a simplified version of this that's only output-oriented where you can't have any sort of meaningful interaction Uh, beyond consumption. So that patent dates back to 1994. Does that mean that's when we started to get smart TVs? Not at all. See, when you file a patent, the patent is supposed to describe a technology that will work. You're not supposed to be able to file patents for stuff that can't work, though that gets pretty tricky in itself. Uh, And it's supposed to work using the approach that's described within the patent. However, there is no requirement that you actually make the ding darn thing. So you don't have to come to the patent office with a working model. You might find out that actually building the device ends up being more expensive and time-consuming 
than it would be worth. Like you might come up with a technology that does work, but it turns out that if you try and make it and then sell it, you wouldn't be able to sell any because you would have to charge such a high price to recapture your expenses. No one would ever buy it. You might also find that you can create the hardware, but then if you don't have content to run on the hardware, the hardware's not very useful. I mean, imagine seeing a new kind of media player, but there's no actual content available on that specific medium. That wouldn't do you any good. It would just take up space. It would either take up physical space if it were something like, you know, kind of like a VCR, or it would take up digital storage space if it were talking about more of a virtual media player. And this is a big issue we see for video game consoles. They have to have compelling games available at launch or else there's no reason to buy them. Well, the patented idea would lay dormant for another decade plus some change. But that didn't mean you didn't have companies thinking about how to deliver internet content to televisions. Let's talk about another initiative that launched not too long after Jean-Marie and Dominique filed that patent in 1994. Talking about web TV. I actually knew a guy who had web TV. I only saw it in action a little bit. I thought it was charming and odd and slow. But Web TV was a startup company, and it was co-founded by a former Apple engineer, uh, the guy who actually developed the QuickTime technology, Steve Perlman. He unveiled this idea in 1996. And I would say the Web TV concept was kind of like video techs from two decades earlier, but it had been updated for the internet age. So instead of a set-top box that would connect to a specific company's services, this was a set-top box that would let you use your television to browse the World Wide Web. So, why even do that? Well, we're going to jump into some stereotypes for a moment. One stereotype is that older people have trouble grasping younger technology. Uh, and as a rapidly older person myself, I can at least anecdotally vouch for this. You should see the look on my face when I have to dive into our project management tools. Tari knows. We've emailed about it. It's not that the tools are bad. It's just I'm old and I do not learn new things very well, which is a good thing that I run a tech podcast, huh? Well, self-deprecating humor aside, there was this perceived untapped market of older television owners uh, that weren't owners of computers, that these are people that we could access if we could find a way to get them online. So these were users who were less inclined to purchase a computer for the purposes of going online simply because that was a big expense. It was unfamiliar technology. So there was there were barriers to entry. So why televisions? Well, everyone knows how to work a television. They've been around for decades. So selling a device that you could just hook up to your television, like a VCR, which was another technology that had been around for a couple of decades, that was an easier sell, at least so it was thought at the time. Web TV was positioned as a technology that could bring the world of the web to your living room, and it wouldn't require anyone to learn how to operate one of those gosh darn computers. But the challenge of bringing online content like web pages to a television spanned beyond the technical. While the technology needed to do that was relatively straightforward, uh, it essentially meant building a purpose-built computer that was a set-top box, and it had a built-in modem that could send signals to the television, getting 
it to be a good experience was more challenging. The web was not designed to be viewed from a distance. The assumption every web designer was making in the 90s is that their visitors were going to be sitting at a computer. They might be at most two feet away from the screen. All the layouts and fonts, everything that was in web design was aimed at that experience. The assumption that the person who was consuming the website was on a computer not far from a screen. If you're sitting on your living room couch and you're several feet away from your TV screen, that experience isn't going to work for you. You won't be able to read anything. The print would be way too small and it would be difficult to navigate the pages. It'd be hard to click on links because you wouldn't be able to see which links were what. So Perlman and his team focused not just on the technical requirements to make this connectivity possible, but also on the user experience and the display settings so that once you were online, you could actually see what you were doing. That would mean doing stuff like having to increase font sizes and figuring out how to get around the layouts of web designers and stuff. And the font size thing was a relatively straightforward solution, but navigating pages ended up being slow and cumbersome. It wasn't bad if you just needed to check on a page for a moment, like maybe just check your email, but it was not a satisfying experience if you really wanted to, and pardon my oldness here, surf the web, as we used to say. Web TV didn't get enough consumer support to really get the initiative uh, or to get any real leverage. And that's interesting because a decade later, we would see a transformation in the way people consumed web content that did force web designers to change how they worked. Web TV failed, right? Web TV was not popular enough. If it had become popular, then there would have been an incentive for web designers to create at least a version of their sites that was optimized for the web TV experience. That would have made browsing on web TV much better. But with such a small target audience, because not a lot of people were adopting web TV, there was no real reason to put forth that kind of effort. But a decade later, smartphones would succeed where web TV failed, in that the trend of people relying more on their smartphone to access websites and services meant that web designers were compelled to respond or else risk becoming irrelevant. Smartphones forced a change in how web designers approached their work. I should know because I was very well aware of that working at a website. Like there was a lot of work done to figure out how to optimize how stuff works for the mobile experience because as more and more people were switching to using their phones to casually access the internet, that's where our audience was going. We had to respond or else we wouldn't have an audience anymore. But web TV never had enough customers to follow that same path. So it just kind of floundered in obscurity. Now, oddly enough, Microsoft actually went on to acquire web TV for a whopping $425 million when the little startups service had only been active for like eight months. So less than a year in action, Microsoft swoops in and buys this company. So you might ask, well, why were the folks at Microsoft thinking that this was a good idea? I don't know the answer to that. But then we're also talking about a company that had a lot of missteps in this era, leading up to and including the company's failure with Windows Mobile. I'll have to do a full episode about Windows Mobile at some point too. Now, just to close out the web TV part of this story, Microsoft would continue to support the service until 2013, 
Although in order to do that, it did have to send out some updates because as equipment gets older, it can't necessarily keep up with the changes that are happening on the software side. That actually is a really big problem with smart TVs in general. The web evolves at a rapid pace and services evolve at a rapid pace as well. And in the case of web TV, the hardware couldn't accommodate all the changes. And so the hardware would become obsolete over time. Plus, it would cost money to continue to support that service. Microsoft had to invest in order to keep that service going. And as we see, that's a common issue with smart TVs today. In general, the required ongoing support means that there's an ongoing expense for companies that eventually tend to decide to pull the plug on that support. And that leaves customers with what who own that particular kind of hardware kind of up the creek. But we'll come back to that. Anyway, Microsoft would redirect a lot of its web TV efforts to its video game console division. The Xbox 360 would include many of the features that could trace their lineage back to the web TV days uh, and its set-top box. Actually, really, the video game consoles kind of became uh, front and center in this world briefly. You might remember when Microsoft was promoting Xbox One, the idea was that the Xbox One was going to be the center for your media entertainment system. And it would uh, allow all sorts of access to streaming content, to live TV. Uh, It would open up gesture controls, all this kind of stuff. It actually ended up alienating a lot of Xbox fans because they were just interested or primarily interested in games. But Microsoft was kind of shifting its promotion to say that this is more than a games console. And meanwhile, the fans were saying, okay, but tell me more about the games part of it. Anyway, we're going to get back to the actual emergence of smart TVs. Just as web TV was starting to become a thing, we started to see the first consumer flat panel televisions. And flat panel TVs and smart TVs, obviously those are not the same thing. These are two different technologies that just happened to converge into the current form factor for televisions. Uh, And at this point in the late 1990s, when flat panel TVs first became a consumer technology, the tech was very, very young and very, very expensive. Like if you wanted one of the first consumer flat panel televisions, you had to be willing to shell out like $15,000 for the privilege. And obviously, as more companies began to produce flat models and improve manufacturing processes, we saw prices come down to a point where you didn't have to choose between buying a new flat TV or buying a car. And the same thing would be true with smart televisions. Early smart TVs, because they had this additional capability, would be marketed at a much higher price, but then it became the norm and prices would come down. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we'll start talking about what are arguably the first true smart televisions and where they came from. But first, another break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. 
Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Okay, we were in the 1990s before the break, and we're going to skip ahead a bunch of years because while we started to see set-top streaming services, we weren't really seeing much movement of incorporating those directly into televisions. Now, there would be attempts to bring some streaming capabilities and digital offerings to TVs once we get into the mid-2000s. A guy named Anthony Wood created the earliest digital video recorder, or DVR, in the late 1990s. That would set the stage for companies like TiVo to have a brief but impactful run in the industry. DVR tech saw some stiff opposition from the cable television world. Uh, This is typical. Whenever there's a technology that allows users to make a copy of something, you often see established industries really put up a fuss about this. So in this case, cable companies didn't like the idea of folks being able to digitally record content and then, horror of horrors, skip commercials when the commercials popped up. Uh, Bad news, folks were already doing that with older tech like VCRs, but that opposition slowed down the growth of the DVR business until the early 2000s. In 2002, Wood would go on to found a new company called Roku. But it would be several years before a Roku streaming device would be available for consumers, and even longer for Roku capabilities to be built directly into television sets. The first Roku device 
was also the first one capable of bringing Netflix's streaming service to televisions. Originally, Netflix was going to produce its own hardware, but then Reed Hastings, who at that time was the sole CEO of Netflix, uh, today he is co-CEO along with Ted Sarandos, he figured that if Netflix started to make its own hardware, that would potentially scuttle future partnerships with other hardware manufacturers because they would view Netflix as a competitor. So he thought it would be better to not get into the hardware business and instead just be the entity that provides the streaming service and partner with hardware manufacturers to bring that streaming service to customers. Roku was then handed the chance to make a name for itself by being the first product that let Netflix customers stream shows directly to their televisions. The company produced its first Roku player in 2008. One year earlier, in 2007, HP introduced the MediaSmart TV. This television would connect to your home network. So it required a PC, a computer, in order to stream content from the computer to the television if you wanted to access online content. So that capability wasn't native to the television itself. You had to have a computer that would act as kind of like a set-top box, sort of like the Roku player. And some people refer to the Media Smart TV as the first smart TV, which would put the origin for smart TVs at 2007. But the Media Smart, while innovative, wasn't a huge hit. Samsung would create a quote-unquote smart TV in 2008 that would only be available in South Korea. It was the PAVV Bordeaux TV 750, or PAV Bordeaux. It allowed customers to watch YouTube videos, they could scan news and weather, and they could do a few other internet-related activities. This television didn't need a set-top box, it didn't need a PC in order to access these features. The TV itself had an Ethernet port. It also had a USB port if you wanted to connect it to a network via a USB adapter. It also came with a gigabyte of content preloaded on the television itself. It did not have writable storage, so you couldn't use the television like a DVR, but you could access online content, you know, in the form of stuff like YouTube videos. Okay, so a lot of other stuff was going on around this time that would really push the evolution of smart TVs. So here in the United States, the country was in the midst of a digital transformation in which all broadcasts were going to switch from analog to digital. There was a lot of digital broadcasting already, but now it was going to be a requirement. You were going to abandon analog transmissions uh, for over-the-air broadcasts. Now, this was when we first launched the Tech Stuff podcast. We've gotten to the point where Tech Stuff is a thing at this point. And one of our early episodes explained why some people would need a digital-to-analog converter so it would accept digital signals, convert it to analog, and then send the analog signal to the television. But they would only be needed for over-the-air broadcasts, and it would be only for people who are actually using antennas to pick up their, their television signals. This whole digital transformation had people in the United States confused. There were a lot of efforts to try and clear out that confusion, some of which were met with, you know, differing amounts of success. There were a lot of people who were ordering these converters, and it turned out they didn't actually need the converters because they were getting their feed from, like, a cable box or something. But they didn't know because it wasn't terribly well communicated early on. This also, however, meant that the country was committing fully to digital transmissions, and that would incentivize more innovation in the digital TV space. Another 
big development was that more households in the United States were gaining access to broadband connections. Without broadband, streaming content is not good. It's kind of lousy, particularly if you want to stream content at a size and resolution that would work well on a television. But this was when we started seeing an improvement in broadband accessibility in the United States. Of course, we are nowhere near done with that phase. There are still plenty of communities in the U.S. that have little to no broadband access. So it is not mission accomplished by any stretch of the imagination. The introduction of televisions like the MediaSmart and the PAVV sent the message that this is going to be the future of television, or at least a future of television, if not the future. I mean, you had companies that were hedging their bets, but it was definitely seen as uh, a potential future. Another big one that was being debated at the time was 3D TV, which ultimately went nowhere. That, that, that branch of the timeline ended in a dead end. Then we entered into the era of widgets. Widgets, you know, these days we would just call them apps, but at the time we called them widgets. And some widgets were very, very simple. Like it might just give you a quick weather report to, you know, highlight and choose that widget or maybe a stock market readout or a list of headlines some ended up getting more complicated. Like you could have a widget that would allow users to launch a service like Netflix or YouTube. These days, you're likely to find smart TVs that have built-in interfaces for numerous streaming services. Although with more arriving all the time, uh, you're not guaranteed to have access to all of them natively through the television. And there were some drawbacks, right? So a big one was that these televisions frequently need ongoing support from the manufacturers to ensure that those features remain usable. This gets to that issue where new streaming services launch, and unless the company that makes your smart TV is able to patch out an update where they're able to include an app that lets you access this new streaming service, you might find that you can't do it unless you have some additional piece of hardware connected to your TV. And just as we saw with the rapid evolution of the web, which ultimately left web TV in the lurch, we see streaming services change as well. And the behind-the-scenes changes of these streaming services might not be immediately noticeable to the average person, right? Like the changes could be done in codecs and, and transmission and compression and decompression. All these kind of things might be changing behind the scenes. And ideally, as a user, you don't even know about it. You don't need to know about it. The technology handles it. But in some cases, these changes can make a service incompatible with older hardware. Like there can come a point where the service has requirements that the older hardware simply is unable to meet. Now, if you are lucky, your hardware will be resilient enough so that your TV's manufacturer can patch it repeatedly, send up out updates to the equipment. So that way you can continue to access these services and it keeps your television relevant. But in some cases, that's just not a possibility or the company just chooses not to support it anymore. And that means over time, those TVs lose functionality, right? Like it, you might have an icon that says you can connect to YouTube, but it doesn't work because YouTube itself has changed and evolved and is no longer compatible with the old hardware of your TV. And so now it's just a widget that doesn't do anything except take up space on your screen. 
And this was a problem, particularly for the first couple of generations of smart TVs, where because of changes that were not in the control of the manufacturers, the functions would lose uh, relevance pretty quickly. So yeah, that's a problem if you don't want to have to replace your television every couple of years, right? You know, the price of TVs has fallen dramatically over time, but you probably still don't want to have to trade out your television over and over. So one big downside of smart TV technology is there's no guarantee that all the features on the TV, the stuff that is meant to sell that television, there's no guarantee that those will remain relevant for the lifetime of your TV, or at least the amount of time you expect to own and use that TV. And sure, you know, it should continue to serve as an actual television, right? It's not like all functionality is going to go out in most cases, I assume. It'd be a terrible idea to have uh, a, a hardware that would completely shut down the television entirely once it got irrelevant. But, you know, if you want to do all the other stuff, you'd be stuck. You would have to find a, a set-top box solution to give you more functionality. But you have to remember, set-top boxes have the same kind of limitations that smart TVs do, that services can evolve beyond the capability of the hardware to present those services. So that's one big issue, is just obsolescence. These devices can go obsolete faster than you would prefer, because if you're buying a TV, chances are you plan on using that TV for a while. I don't know about all of you, but like the the television I have in my living room, I've owned that for, I don't know, maybe a decade at this point, somewhere along there. And it works fine. It's not a 4K set either. It's, <laughs> I've thought about upgrading to a 4K, but I haven't. And it's fine, especially since I don't watch much television at all. There's no reason for me to upgrade. Well, you don't want to have basic features of your television become... Uh, defunct and require you to upgrade every couple of years, that would be very frustrating. Another big issue and a growing issue with modern televisions is privacy. So in June of this year, this year being 2022 for any of y'all listening from the future, Roku and Walmart announced a new partnership. And the plan is for Walmart to enable viewers the chance, the opportunity, if you will, to purchase featured products directly through their Roku streaming service. So in other words, you can imagine a situation where maybe you're watching a particular show and there's some product that's prominently featured on the show. You know, uh, I, I see this all the time with laptops. Like if you watch certain movies, you can tell what year they were made based upon the incredibly prominent logos that are on display from all the different laptops that are open on different tables and stuff. Well, in this case, there's a chance that Walmart can leverage that and then shoot you an ad to give you the chance to buy the product you've just seen on screen through Walmart just by pressing a button on your Roku remote. More than that, because smart TVs are essentially data gathering machines, remember, old TVs, it was output only. Like, no one knew what it was you were watching. They didn't know, you know, if you were paying attention to something that had a lot of product placement in it. But with smart TVs, that data goes both ways. And what you're watching, that can all be sent back to the streaming service provider or the manufacturer, whatever it may be. That means data is being gathered as you watch different programs and when you watch and how much you watch, all of those kind of things. 
Well, that would mean that Walmart could actually start to target ads to you based upon your behavior. Walmart and Roku can analyze what you do and come up with the most ideal way to present ads to you that are most likely to get a positive response from you. So in other words, your TV watches you. (laughs) You're not watching the TV as much as the TV is watching you. And it's measuring your behaviors in an effort to sell you more stuff and to do it more effectively. And that it's possible that the ads you encounter as you navigate through the user experience are going to be based off that analysis of your behavior. So you could see this extending beyond this kind of implementation that I'm describing. Imagine that you have streaming services that are switching to ad-supported tiers of service, presumably at a lower cost for subscribers, so that people who don't want to pay full price to subscribe to whatever can pay uh, a lower fee for uh, ad-supported access. Well, you can imagine those streaming services paying attention to what people are watching and how they watch it, and then presenting ads that are customized based upon that user behavior. It's very easy to imagine you have five different households sitting down to watch the exact same program on the exact same streaming services, but they all get different ads based upon the behaviors within that individual household. In order for that to work, that means your television is constantly paying attention to what you're doing on the TV. Just as we've seen with computers and smartphones and other smart devices. So in a way, this is nothing new. It's not like, oh, this new specter of surveillance is upon us. We've been under that for a long time. But now we've got another piece of technology that is participating in that surveillance in an effort to make money off of your information. Either by using your information to target ads to you more effectively or maybe even to sell your information to some other third party, depending upon the user agreement for that particular streaming service and that particular hardware. There are definitely privacy concerns with that kind of approach, but we're likely to see several instances in which people's privacy tends to be compromised before we start to see corrections to prevent similar issues in the future, just because that's typically how it works, fun times. And it's not likely to change. If anything, I expect we're going to see a lot more integration of programming matched with user behavior that is fueled by things like the smart television technology. According to Hub Entertainment Research, 57% of all televisions are now smart sets. So that means they now effectively, they outnumber the non-smart or dumb TVs. Uh, The television I mentioned, the one that I have upstairs, is a dumb TV. It's not a smart TV. It doesn't have any native apps in it. I can't access anything unless I have another piece of hardware connected to the TV, like my Xbox. I can do it through there. But the TV itself is a dumb TV. It is now in the minority of televisions that are out there. In the United States, 76% of households with a television have a smart TV. That trend is also playing a part in the death of cable and satellite TV as people access more streaming content and less traditional cable and satellite content, which leads people to say, why do I need a cable TV subscription? I never watch cable TV. So I'm sure I'm going to come back to that if I do a full episode about the decline of cable and satellite TV or when I do an episode, because I'm sure I will. I just don't know when I will do it yet. But yeah, that's kind of how smart TVs came into being. And it I'm actually surprised 
that we haven't seen more leveraging of smart TVs in order to gather more data and to advertise more directly to, to users. There have been instances of that before this Roku Walmart deal, but generally speaking, it's been kind of on the DL. It hasn't been that big of a trend, uh, not as big as I would have expected it to be, but it seems like that is changing now. And I think maybe the reason for that is that there is this noticeable shift away from the traditional media sources for television, that being like cable and satellite and over the air, toward the online streaming services and therefore the opportunities to gather that information and to make use of it have increased. So maybe that's why we're starting to see it now. If you have topics you would like me to cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, reach out to me and let me know what those are. One way to do that is to download the iHeartRadio app, navigate over to the Tech Stuff page, and use the little microphone icon to leave a voice message. It can be up to 30 seconds in length. The other way is to reach out on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.